This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and help with candidate expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at Checker.com. Thank you, Checker. segment of any society because their lives and rights are entrusted to the society they belong to. Children are also the most preyed upon segment of the so-called criminal justice system by those claiming to uphold the law and by those who break the law, especially in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, there are more prisoners serving life without parole sentences for crimes they committed or participated in as child offenders than in any other state in the United States. According to Human Rights Watch and the Pennsylvania DOC statistics, the number has well exceeded 400. In the United States, there are 2,000 prisoners serving juvenile life without parole sentences. Well, in all the other countries of the world, there are... Do you know how many? There are zero in all the other countries of the world. Consider the absurdity of that for a moment. In this week's episode, Suave and I speak to Robert Salim Holbrook, former juvenile lifer and executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. In this wide-ranging interview, we discuss juvenile life without parole, what incarceration does to communities, creating change inside and outside the walls of prison, and how a child becomes a soldier in the fight against the system of mass incarceration. Unfortunately, Salim's story is not unique. Pennsylvania has historically had more children sentenced to life than any other state in the United States, as well as more than any other country outside the U.S. combined. In May 2021, the Supreme Court essentially overturned settled case law and previous decisions when ruling 6-3 to three in Jones v. Mississippi that the state can still impose mandatory life sentences without parole on children as long as the court considers their age. 
This is a giant step backwards and goes against the most current brain science, which has shown that adolescents do not have the cognitive ability to fully comprehend the consequences of their actions. It also makes it easier to impose a sentence of life without parole, even when the child can be rehabilitated. Our call to action this week is simple. Call your district attorney or prosecutor's office and let them know that you oppose life sentences without parole for children. Also let them know that you vote. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Robert Salim Holbrook. I'm the executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. My story is is not a unique story, but I feel as though it's a story that is common to a lot of young men who came of age in the city of Philadelphia in the late 80s. And I think it also has relevance to a lot of people and kids, children who are coming of age today. You know, I came from a single parent home, a working mother. My father was as present as he could be in, in our lives. I went to Catholic school. I came, you know, I, I came from a family that was probably borderline dysfunctional. However, we had a lot of love, a lot of support for one another. And my parents placed a high value on going to school, getting a good education staying out of trouble, looking after one another. When I got older, probably in my you know, early teens, 13 or 14 years old, I started to deviate away from those values that I was brought up in the home. And there's several reasons why I deviated. A lot of them were just the recklessness of youth, right? A lot of it had to do with the culture of the streets coming up in North Philadelphia, seeing seeing the instant success that the drug game was giving people at the age of 13 and 14 years old, it was very alluring to me because that's what I wanted. I wanted success, I wanted prestige. I wanted to be able to afford the, the clothing and the jewelry that my working class family could not afford to give me. Although they gave me a lot. They gave me love. They, 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 when they could, they gave me the clothes that I, I wanted and the clothes that I needed. But in the, that recklessness of youth, I wanted more. But I didn't see the consequences of it. And so when I was like 14 years old, there was a you know, drug dealer in my neighborhood that I had a car that I Every time he, it was it was a Nissan Maxima that was kitted up, sat low to the ground, had the rims. You know, back then that was that was it. And I remember I complimented him on his car, and I did this on purpose because I wanted him to notice me, and I knew that this was the way in. Because I feel like there is a misconception out there that drug dealers recruit children, and that's not true. The lifestyle recruits children. There was no drug dealer waiting outside the school recruiting all of us kids coming out of school. That's a myth, right? The culture of the drug game recruited us. So I started striking up conversations with him and that's what got me involved in what they call the game and drug dealing. For me, my experience in the drug game was very quick. The consequences were fatal for an innocent person in my community, but also for a lot of my friends because 
a lot of my friends didn't make it out of it alive by the time they were 16 years old. And myself, at the age of 16, I was arrested for being a lookout to a drug-related homicide in my neighborhood. The victim was innocent. It's something that, to this day, you know, I, I carry with me because all of us, in one way or another, knew each other. Our families knew each other. When I went to court, one of the most memorable things for me, thinking now, looking back 30 years ago, was when I turned around in that courtroom and looked behind me, and everyone in that courtroom, I knew them all, and, and we all knew each other. Our families knew each other. Even though the defendants, we were sitting on one side of the courtroom with the defense, and the victim's family was sitting on the side of the prosecution, right? And there was this imaginary, there was this aisle down the middle as if we, that's keeping us apart. When I turned around, that was when the, the enormity of what I was involved with really hit me at the age of 16 years old. Cause I, I saw the, the, the pain that, I didn't know what trauma was then, but I saw it, right? I couldn't process it, but I, I knew like, damn, what is going on here? And I knew that when we all left out that courtroom, that wall, that aisle was not there because we were all going back to the same neighborhood. So for me, I was sentenced to life without parole. I was facing a death sentence. Even though I was a lookout, I was facing a death sentence because the judge and the prosecution theory was basically that I maintained my role as a lookout while I knew someone was being killed. The judge, however, found that that was not the case, but the judge did find that because I knew or should have known that someone was being killed in that house, even though I didn't touch the victim, I didn't see what was going on, that I was guilty of first degree murder. And he had no choice under the law but to sentence me to a mandatory life without parole sentence. Yeah, I have a 13 year old son and I think it will be tough for me to think that he will have to pay the rest of his life for something he did right now. Children are different than adults, and our justice system should treat them that way. We are the only country in the world that treats our children like adults. Sentencing children to life sentences is dangerous, costly, and unconstitutional. Join the growing movement to treat children like children. Let's invest in childhood and not punishment. Schools, not prisons. End juvenile life without parole. I went upstate 17 years old. I could probably write a whole book about my experiences going upstate 17 years old. It was a very trying moment. It was a moment where I had to, I like to tell people now, I had to step into myself and kill a piece of myself in order to survive. All of the empathy that I had for other people, consideration, you had to remove that because it was about survival. It was about how do I make it through the night into the next day and then survival starts all over. I didn't understand the totality of a life without parole sentence. I was 17 years old. I hadn't lived when I was, you know what I'm saying? So that for the judge to tell me I was gonna spend the rest of my life in prison, it really, it didn't, I couldn't calculate it in terms of years or anything like that. Because like I said, I had not experienced life yet. So my thing was day-to-day -day survival. And in that course of day-to-day -day survival, I had to, as a 17-year-old, light-skinned dude, 140 pounds, 
I had to take on the mentality that I was six foot ten and three hundred and forty pounds, and I had to have that attitude, and that's how I was. As a result of that, the first five years of my incarceration, I was involved in multiple assaults. I was, I stabbed people. I was stabbed twice. I spent years in the hole. The first ten years of my incarceration, I spent probably eight years in solitary confinement. But at the same time, there was this duality going on in that I was still educating myself. I was educating myself culturally. I was fortunate to come across political prisoners that had were grooming me and telling me like, "Look, what you're doing is not working, bro." And you believing that you are representing your neighborhood by acts that actually harmed your neighborhood is it's it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And they showed me their examples, right? So when I learned about the Black Panther Party through Russell Maroon Schultz and Joseph Jojo Bowens and the Black Liberation Army, how they were actually defending the community, feeding the community, defending the community against people who were harming people, as well as defending the community against racist and, and abusive police, I had to now look inward because these are the men that are grooming me and I'm reading about these liberation movements all over the world, but a contradiction existed that, man, I'm in prison for harming someone from my own community. And I'm even in prison still reading this and still acting out this same script. That was like a wake up moment for me. And it happened of all places in the special management unit when I was in solitary confinement for three years. And it just got to a point where I really had to reevaluate where I was at in my life. I was like 24, 25. I had almost 10 years in prison. I went into the special management unit at 21. I was the youngest in the state in the special management unit with other prisoners that were buried. And I was very fortunate that I, I was shared the cell block and the, the vent because that's the only way you could communicate was through a prison, through the ventilation shaft with people like Dennis Solo McKeithen, a well-known jailhouse activist prisoner that really saved me. Russell Maroon shows those these political prisons, they really saved me. And coming out of that, my family was already on the outside advocating for me. My mother was, when she was alive, was my staunchest advocate. My family were going to community events. And I'm out here looking, okay, I got to change how I'm rolling in here because here my family is out here advocating for me, but I'm actually acting the opposite in here. So I had to really shift a lot of my consciousness, my perspective, and that's what got me involved in advocacy on the inside. And me and my late mother, we helped co-found the Human Rights Coalition with other prisoners who were in solitary confinement and other prisoners who were connected with political prisoners in Pennsylvania. Brett Grody, who is the legal director of the Abolitionist Law Center, he was a volunteer for the Human Rights Coalition chapter in Pittsburgh that I co-founded from SCI Green because I was kicked all around the state and I used that opportunity when the prison would kick me out because of my advocacy to set up HRC branches in cities near the prisons I was in. He became a volunteer investigating solitary confinement in the prisons for the Human Rights Coalition. Him and I developed a very strong relationship. I was released in 2018 as a result of the Miller versus Alabama ruling, and then subsequently the Louisiana versus Montgomery ruling that held Miller retroactive, that you could not mandatory sentence juveniles, children to mandatory life without parole sentences. Released in 2008, came on board with the Abolitionist Law Center as an organizer, 
2019, I became the Abolitionist Law Center Director of Community Organizing. And in 2020, I became the Abolitionist Law Center's Executive Director. It's a position that I'm very proud to occupy. I'm proud to be a part of this movement that was created by myself and other prisoners on the inside, our family members, and staunch, dedicated abolitionist activists out here on the street. So, Salim, just a couple of things. How old were you when you were when you were first in state penitentiary in Pennsylvania? I turned 17 in in January of 1991 and I was sent upstate in March of 1991, 17 years old. You know, it's also good to mention that at the time that Celine came up, the penitentiary was the penitentiary. It was brutal for victimizing young offenders. So when we came in as young offenders, we had to act out in a certain way to protect ourselves and our manhood. That was the penitentiary back then. So when people hear young offenders coming into the penitentiary, I want them to understand that we're talking about kids being thrown in cell blocks that look like football fields in Gratisville to feed for themselves. This was the type of penitentiary that Celine came through, that I came through. But yet we managed to transform our lives and help other prisoners. And this is the reason why we brought you on the show today, because we want the people to understand that we are more than our worst mistake, like Brian Stevenson said. However, the people most know that we're working with a corrupt system that like to throw kids in penitentiaries with grown-ass men. And most of the time, these kids don't survive. I've watched young people grow up in the in the, in the prison system. Messiah Ramkassoon works with the group as a program director and believes a successful transition back into society is essential in reducing recidivism. He also points to studies showing that the human brain is highly malleable up until your mid-20s, and that until that age, the parts of our brains responsible for decision-making and impulse control aren't fully developed. You know why? Because they don't have the mentorship that you had. You know, we was fortunate to be around people like Russell, Maroon. But they took a whole bunch of us under the wing. We was fortunate to educate ourselves. But what about those that don't have the chance? That's what the people need to understand. These are the people that are going to come home and be your neighbors. These are the people that are going to come home and date your daughters, your granddaughters, your nieces. You know, so you might as well as a citizen, be involved now. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about that. So you're, how long have you been out now, Celine? Three years, uh, February 20th for my, was my three year anniversary. And you're already the ED of a abolitionist organization. Yes, the Abolitionist Law Center, yep. That, that's truly amazing. So talk a little bit about your current work and what the Abolitionist Law Center is doing to advocate for individuals that are still incarcerated and like you were sentenced to LWAP as a juvenile. Supreme Court today came out with a new opinion in the case of Jones versus Mississippi. It was a six to three decision. And what does it do? It rejects restrictions on life without parole 
for juveniles. What does that mean? Well, there were restrictions on this. In other words, you could not keep juveniles in custody for life without parole because there were restrictions on that. Well, the Supreme Court today said no. You don't need those restrictions. You want to keep a kid in custody for the rest of their lives? No problem at all. You have our total endorsement. Six judges. So the question here is, can you sentence a juvenile offender to life? And can you do it without parole? So you lock them up, throw away the keys. This is somebody who's under 18. Can they be locked up for life without parole? Supreme Court says yes, they can. Well, we have several campaigns. I mean, our work is very extensive. We we work across the state, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and statewide. We lead campaigns against ending death by incarceration because the same ruling, the same science, the same decision that led to my release, we believe that this should apply to all lifers. Because again, I'm not unique, right? There are thousands of other lifers who have been in prison 30, 40, and 50 years who have given an opportunity to come home would do just as well as I'm doing. Let me interject for a minute. Give me at least five names of five lifers that you think deserve the same opportunity we had. I could think of David Lee. I could think of Robert Fergus. I could think of John Hall. I could think of Anthony Sutton. I could think of Tyree Wallace. I could think of so many. I could just run all of their names off endlessly. I mean. Right, and combined together, we talking about almost 500 years of incarceration. Mm -hmm. 500 years of incarceration. People that if you put them in the community, would not reoffend ever again. Absolutely. Yeah, they're done. They got it out of them. A lot of them didn't even have it in them, but because we have a system that treats human beings as disposable, they never have the opportunity to show that they are not the person they were 30, 40, and in some cases, 50 years ago. When you work with this population, you begin to realize just how uh, certain it is that they are people who are in the middle of change. And yet, a sentence of life without parole is a sentence that was really reserved for people who will never change, people who are beyond hope. Their capacity for change is so small that we can give them a permanent sentence of death in prison. We don't let kids do things that we let adults do. We don't let them drive, we don't let them smoke, we don't let them drink, we don't let them make important decisions. We, they can't get medical care without consent of parents, they can't join the military. It's not honest to say that you're an adult if you make a really bad decision at 13 and 14, uh, but you're not in all these other areas of life. I think our enthusiasm for punishment, our indifference to redemption and rehabilitation and change has made it possible for us to stop thinking about some kids. And so that's what we are advocating for, to give them that opportunity. I mean, we also advocate against state violence in the form of solitary confinement. One of our cases that we won was the case of Arthur Chetaway Johnson, who was in the hole for 38 years. We got him out the hole. We got Russell Maroon Schultz out of the hole after 30 years. We helped get JoJo Bowens out of the hole after 34 years. These are all black political prisoners who were members of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army, right? Helped get them out. We represented Mumia Abu-Jamal on his case against the Department of Corrections because of hepatitis C when they want, didn't want to treat him and were content to let him die of liver failure. We represented him for that. 
We're representing the family of Tyrone Briggs, a prisoner who was murdered, killed by guards at SCI Monohoy two years ago. He was being stabbed and the guards ran into the yard and pepper sprayed him with OC spray and tear gas. He had asthma. After he was handcuffed, he was sprayed again. He died en route to the RHU. He had a, he had a cardiac failure, right? So we're representing his family because he was defending himself, but the amount of force that was used caused him to go into cardiac arrest and die because they were indiscriminate in the way they used their their OC spray. So our work is, I mean, even on, but it's, and it's not just limited to prisons because when the Philadelphia police and the Pittsburgh police attacked peaceful protesters during the summer in response to the killing of George Floyd, we stepped up and dragged both of those police departments into court for attacking peaceful protesters in, in Philly and Pittsburgh. So our work is very extensive. I'm really proud that we have grown our staff since I became ED, since I became organizing director two years ago, and that we are leading real abolitionist and decarceral work in this state and also in this country. So one of the interesting facts about incarceration in the U.S., is that uh, one in seven currently incarcerated individuals are serving life without parole. There's nothing like that in the no, rest of the but, world. I mean, listen, it's, here's the thing. Let's, let's, put the, let's put the, bring the elephant into the room, right? Let's talk yep. about criminal justice reform beyond the low-hanging fruit, right? Because this is something that I think is really important. When people go for criminal justice reform, and this is what differentiates us the Abolitionist Law Center from other groups. When when groups go for criminal justice reform, they usually go for what you hear, the low-hanging fruit. Let's go for drug offenders, nonviolent offenders, and all that. When we look at mass incarceration as a tree and we see that low-hanging fruit, our position is we're not going for the low-hanging fruit. We're going to chop the fucking tree down. That's what makes us different. We're not trying to pick that low-hanging fruit. We're going to bring this whole tree down. And the the way the only way you could bring that tree down is you have to deal with serious and violent offenses. Because in Pennsylvania, 60% of the prisoners who are in prison are in prison for violent offenses. You could release all of the prisoners on nonviolent and drug offenses today in America, and you're still going to have mass incarceration. Because the majority of prisoners who are in prison, and I know a lot of advocacy groups don't like to hear this, but it's the reality. The majority of people who are in prison in the United States and who are on supervision are on it because of serious and violent offenses. And we have to address that because if we don't, we're never going to end mass incarceration. And the flip side of this is that those numbers you said about one in seven people serving life sentence, that is a perpetual population that is held captive because it's not just life without parole sentences these are serious and long-term sentences and the majority of the people are people who well not the majority but close to the majority are people who are seniors and geriatric prisoners in mm-hmm. pennsylvania 50 percent of the prisoners serving life without parole are at the age of 50 and they have been in prison for over 20 years they have reached that age point where all of the data shows they have aged out of crime, right? So this isn't even about innocence or guilt now. This is about public safety that we're talking about. If you want to release a population, if you want to decarcerate 
you start with the population that the community feels is the least threat to their community. And that is with serious offenders who have been in prison for a long time. Because as I said, the data shows those who are in their 40s and have been in prison for decades, as they get older, their recidivism rate drops. When you get into the 50s, it's in single digits. When you get into the 60s, it's at like one or 2%, right? Those are the populations that we should be decarcerating first in the United States. They are at the back of the bus. And and that's what we're trying to bring them to the front because those are the populations that we need to get out. You know, what we try to do with Death by Incarceration Podcast is highlight cases and issues to the masses because we believe that nobody's out there is getting it. When I mean getting it is almost 500 juvenile lifers have been released in PA and not even 1% have reoffended. Right. And the majority of them are serving in positions like you. Yeah. You know, we got people working in the district attorney's office. We got people running organizations. We got people running their own businesses. You know, these are people that were discarded by the courts at one time mm-hmm. saying you would not never add up to nothing. You you ain't worth nothing. You're going to prison to die. Now we are here, you know, bringing it, showing society that we belong. What is your point of view and what is your message to those returning back into the community? Anytime a child is arrested, cuffed and held, whatever system you're in, it's, it's traumatizing. Chris Pahigian is executive director of Friends of Island Academy. The role of the reentry network or any system of aftercare support is that we know coming out of the box where it is you're going to go home to and to have a plan in place and to help navigate and implement that plan once they get home. What is our pledge? What is the pledge that we long time should take and I mean, that's in a, the community? That is a really good point because I remember when I was being resentenced and I was down there on Greater Fruit because I came down from SCI Green. You know, I was 300 miles away from home, but when I got sentenced, they had to bring me back closer to Philly. And I was down there on B Block and I was talking with one of our comrades, Ghani, about this. And I said, listen, I paid my debt to the state. That's done. I said, all of us have paid our debt to the state. However, when it comes to paying our debt to our community, that was our pledge, that we're going to come out here and we're going to help these communities that we harmed and we're part of the culture of harm in our communities. And so that's what I would ask people who are coming out to make a pledge to. You paid your debt to the state. Your incarceration, the, your, your freedom being stripped from you was your, your punishment. We still paying our debt because we are lifetime on paper. And we exactly. got to pay them, well, and we got to pay them right. supervision fees. Well, no, see, that's the difference. I understand what you're saying, but we're not accepting that debt, right? So that's why I said that I gave, I, I paid my debt off to the state. Now, anything else they get, they're gonna have to take, right? And so, yeah, that, that's by that's not by choice that I'm out here on parole or that I'm doing these supervision fees and all that ridiculous nonsense, right? That's definitely not by choice, and it's also a waste of time. Because while they're 
running me through the hoops and all this nonsense. They don't need to be doing that to me. They don't need to be doing that to you. They don't need to be do, doing that to Ghani, to, to Bobby Harris, to a lot of other activists that are out here on the streets. You're wasting your time with us, right? But you continue to want to squeeze and squeeze. So I feel what you're saying. Yeah, we are still paying a debt to the state, although that is a forced debt because we gave the state all that they should have got and more. We gave them more than a lifetime. I also want to point out that being in prison reduces life expectancy because of the stresses and the lack of health care, the lack of connection with community, which are all contributing factors to lowering life expectancy. And when you're talking about black and brown communities specifically, the life expectancy is already lower even when you're you know, outside in, in sort of normal life. So the fact that these sentences are so long and, you know, one other thing that I wanted to point out is the recidivism rate for former juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania is incredibly low. In Michigan, it's zero. Not a single juvenile lifer paroled in the state of Michigan has reoffended and gone back to prison. And Kevin, this, this is not an anomaly. If you look at the recidivism rate of California, California has released over 6,000 lifers. And their recidivism rate is lower than 3%. Look at New York. New York has been releasing lifers for decades, right? They didn't even have life without parole for years. They only got life without parole like 20 years ago. And and, and, and they're in a single, uh, less than 100 prisoners are serving life without parole in New York out of its thousands of lifers population, right? But they've been releasing lifers for years up there after 25 years, and their recidivism rate is low. If you look at the Ungers in Maryland, I think it was like 200 of them who were released after 40 years, right? By virtue of a court ruling, none of them have, they have been have reoffended. They all have the same thing, low recidivism rates. But here's the thing. There's no alternative facts when it comes to math right? The math don't lie. So when you look at recidivism rates, when it comes to offenders who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, the recidivism rate progressively drops. You age out, period, by your late 30s. So this data is all over the place. It's just that because we have a system that is based on perpetual punishment, we don't take facts into example or in consideration. All of our analysis is driven by emotion, vengeance, politics. Fear. <laughs> so why do you think, why you think Pennsylvania haven't joined our neighboring states? The, for the reasons I just cited. It's politics. It's the politics of vengeance. It's Pennsylvania having a victim advocate for the past 13 years that was against any type of criminal justice reform, even low hanging fruit criminal justice reform for probation and parole. Your former victim advocate, Jennifer Storm, opposed that. She opposed life without parole sentences. Now, fortunately, we were able to mobilize a campaign, probably one of the first in the country, where we got communities who spoke to the victim's advocate and said, yo, you ain't the Pope. 
you're not a religious figure. You're not going to keep weaponizing victims and, and, and shutting us down when we're advocating reform. And we got victims from all across Philadelphia, the community, Pittsburgh, across the state, victims who were centered in these communities and said, listen, I had a loved one taken from me violently, murdered, but I also had a loved one taken from me by the system who was serving death by incarceration or is who, who is in prison for a serious offense. You don't speak for me when you say, claim to speak for victims. Because I know, and if you look at all of the communities that are most impacted by harm and violence and homicide and mass incarceration, they all know that all of these are interwoven. There's no separation in our communities between victim and offender. We all know each other. I'm a perfect example of that. Yeah, I was in that courtroom in 1991 as someone who was involved in taking another human being's life at the age of 16. 16 years later, who's, my family lost two loved ones within one year to gun violence in Philadelphia. Two cousins in one year. My family was in that, now was on the opposite side of that courtroom. So were we, are, we, are we not victims, right? Where, where am I at in this? Where is my family in this? And you know what? I'm not unique. That's all throughout Philly. That's the reality in every community in this country. But because politics have become so divisive, because mass incarceration has become a campaign issue, and because of the racial injustice of mass incarceration, that is never considered. Victims don't look like us. The victims advocate offices across the country, ideal of a victim is a white suburban woman. That's who they want to be the victim. And the reality is that's not who it is. So it was it's great you got into that because I wanted to talk about ripple effects in the community of both the actual crime and then the incarceration. Because I think what people are missing, and Suave and I have been talking about this on the phone a lot, is that when you take somebody out of their family unit, regardless of the crime, and make it almost impossible to visit them, there, it does not encourage rehabilitation. And it's interesting that almost every state, you know, like California, CDCR, right? <laughs> like, why is the R on there when you're removing people from their community and they're not given the opportunity unless they're in a program prison like San Quentin to actually do things to rehabilitate? And so there's a major ripple effect on the communities. And I agree with you. I think there's a huge discrepancy between victims advocacy groups and who's leading them and the actual true victims of these crimes, including the crime of these long sentences, which I, I consider to be completely inhumane. And by most international law, especially when we're talking about juveniles, is no other country in the world locks up their juveniles for life. I mean, I'm, I, I changed, and I'm not the same individual, but again, I feel ashamed of what I did, man. If I'd have just walked away that night, if I'd have just been like, okay, if I didn't feel I had to prove anything to anybody, Bobby Botello would be alive today. This was a murder that uh, was clearly first degree. Mr. For the victim's family and the prosecutors, Roland's story of prison transformation wasn't enough. This was a crime that merits punishment beyond 18 years. He has not served a sufficient amount of time. There are people who show up at, at every hearing and oppose. Absolutely. And they say 18 years, 25 years, that's not enough. Yeah, yeah. It, that's really a tough one. I guess, you know, I, 
I guess I would turn it around in, in a sense and say, what would be accomplished if Anthony spent another 20 years in prison? I understand what I did. I know what I did. Despite of me serving this sentence, I've still made the efforts to grow and fix myself. Fix myself from the individual that killed Mr. Batelli. If you look carefully at the Supreme Court decisions, what they said is, you know, what is the purpose of locking somebody up? How much time does it take for that kid who is dangerous at that moment in time to grow up? And so we've we've created this self-perpetuating system. And I think the question that I would like to pose to you, Salim, and Suave, you can jump in on this as well, is what do you need from the community to start to heal this? Because it's not just what you can give us. What can we give to formerly incarcerated individuals that are now out to ensure that we're not running into the same loop over and over again? How can we assist? What can we do? What's our vision? And so how do we work with district attorney's offices, with local community groups, with victims advocacy groups? How do we sort of right this wrong as a whole and start to heal as a, as a, as a country? Well, I'll say this. I think that the first thing we need to do is educate ourselves as a community and what's really going on with the politics. Because the criminal justice system is a big business. And we see that in Philadelphia now. That's what we come in at. It's our job to educate the community and let them know this is what you could get. And fortunately for us in Philadelphia, we have done the kind of work that the community kind of embraces but that's not always the case because it's about who you know in the community and I think the people should understand that we're not talking about Celine or Suave we're talking about your grandkid your nephew your son, your daughter right? because today is me but tomorrow could be you and understand that when we talk about mass incarceration and life sentence, we also talk about death by incarceration, which is they can't give you life no more, but they give you a hundred years now. You yeah. know, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Let's not forget that the people that's receiving these kind of sentences look like me and Celine mm-hmm. most of the time. They're coming from North Philadelphia, right? Districts that It's been abandoned by the system a long time ago. So the community needs to understand that when we come in, we coming in with a pure heart. We coming in because we can. We coming in because that is a home to us. Yes, yeah, and I echo Swab. Listen, it has to be a community conversation. We also have to address this as not offender and victim, but as community. So that is, we have to have a restorative justice approach that holds you accountable and seeks to restore the harm in the community. But also, we also, I would even go further and say we need a transformative justice, right? Because now we need to transform this society. And in order for us to get to that system where people reintegrating into society from prison are given an opportunity to reintegrate and hopefully contribute to their community, we also want to address the causes on the front end that 
bring people into contact with policing and prisons and the system that cause a lot of the harm in our communities because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is no, it's not a coincidence that the communities that have the least amount of resources and are trapped in the highest rates of structural poverty and discrimination have the highest rates of harm in them, have the highest rates of crime in, in them, have the highest rates of incarceration in them, and ironically, have the highest rates of police in them. Like these should be the safest communities in the world because they have more police than any other community and they got, they're locking more people up than any other community. The, the system has failed on the front end and the back end. So we need to have a community conversation about what it means to transform justice in America because justice in America has been flawed since its inception, okay? Because the image of justice for white America for 200 years in America was whatever that statue is of the lady holding the scales of justice blind, that's a fairy tale. The image of justice for black people in this country, for brown people in this country, and vulnerable populations in this country has been the noose, right? That's been the image of justice for us. So we need to transform what justice is in this country and turn it into a community concept of justice, right? Take it away from a state concept of justice because the state's concept of justice was built on a foundation of genocide, exploitation, racism, and perpetuating harm. Wow. <laughs> I can't even, it's so interesting. I was thinking about this last night, getting ready for this, with this, for this interview. And I can't imagine the level of policing that I've seen in, you know, the Bayview and Hunter's Point in San Francisco in Pacific Heights, for example. Can you imagine if kids leaving their Catholic prep schools were getting just like grabbed and frisked by cops on the way home? I mean, there would be, <laughs> there, there would be like a, a, a revolt and it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. I mean, the level of police presence in low-income black and brown communities, they should be absolutely the safest place on earth. And yet no one's seeing this as a systemic problem to the degree that it's changing. Now, obviously you all are seeing it as a systemic problem and we are collectively putting this message out there to hopefully start making some changes and having district attorneys who are under a lot of fire, like, like Chase Bodine and your current district attorney, Krasner, because of their more sort of progressive ideas. And I say progressive, but really, is it progressive to be an advocate for human rights? I mean, is that like actually a progressive idea? It's, In America, it, yes. But yet that is what, as far as I'm understand, and I'm no theologian, but most religions are based in the idea of basic human rights. And, you know, people talk about this country being founded on, you know, so-called Christian values. And I don't want to get into a religious discussion, but the fact of the matter is we have missed the mark as a country. And it's starting to be an issue that people are paying attention to. But I think voices like yours, Salim, voices like yours, Suave, as we continue to push this message are the ones that are going to be at the forefront of true change. And I think the biggest thing is, is that there's not 
what I don't detect from either one of you, which is amazing, is this level of ego around it. It's basically like you are truly, because of your experience and what's made you into the men that you are today, interested in helping and fixing the issues in your communities and the places where you came up. Direct file in Florida is a statute that gives prosecutors very broad discretion to decide which children to prosecute as adults. And the reason why initially this law was passed in 1978 was because there was this perceived onslaught of juvenile crime and they felt they really had to get tough on crime and there was a perception that the judges were being too lenient um, and so this was the answer. What kind of numbers are we talking about here? Like how many cases? Last year, Florida prosecuted approximately 1,500 children in the adult system. And the vast majority of those children, about 98% of them, got there through this direct file statute. In other words, got there because the prosecutor decided to send them there, not because the judge looked at the case or for any other reason, but because the prosecutor made that determination. And it's unfortunate the cause for this has to be such a punitive one you know, and such a punishing one that the people that are speaking up are the ones that are the most harmed and yet the most compassionate towards the people around them. And so, you know, I think moving forward, what can we do beyond talking about this? And, you know, you, you've got a, an amazing group that you're heading now, but, you know, what, what can the average sort of person do? I mean, maybe join victims groups and start to change the conversation within those groups. Have community meetings where neighborhoods are coming together and saying, how do we help each other become you know, better people and better members of the community? I'm a huge advocate for vote, voting locally, and I think we need to change the voter rights laws because there's millions of people disenfranchised because of former because of things they did when they were teenagers, you know what I mean? Or, or or in their early 20s and they're now in their 50s or 60s and they've been out of prison for years and years and they still can't vote in certain states. I know California is, is a little different because we're different with a lot of things, but are we really that different with the, the number of people we have incarcerated here? I mean, it's it's insane. I think forwarding that conversation and, and how do we come together? How do we How do we get groups like yours connected with you know, groups in California, Celine, how do we, how do we really push this conversation forward? And I know Suave has got a huge platform right now because of the podcast, but there's so many voices out there that we want to get out on this show and parlay that. I mean, I say this, that one thing that people could do to get involved is support what we're doing. Everybody's not cut to be in the front line. Everybody's not cut to be the face of the movement. But you can support by donating. You can support by volunteering, answering the phones, passing out flyers, registering to vote. Because in PA, ex-felons could vote. Register to vote. Because that's the only way we're going to bring change. That's right. And I mean, just an example of those connections, we're making them. We talk to people from Dignity, and uh, power now, Los Angeles. We talked to act, activists from La Defensia in Los Angeles. I work with abolition and decarceration activists all across the country, and we need to do more to connect people. We need more local organizing. Look, we got to get back to local grassroots, boots on the ground organizing. That's what we have to do as a people and as a community to save our communities. We can't have access politics 
access advocacy anymore. Like we got to put a stop to a lot of that. Whereas it's just based on your access to political power or political power access to one another, right? The photo op politics that we, we see a lot, the press conference politics, the politics of being looped into the meeting with the legislators or the city council or the politicians. No, we need to start go back to actually organizing and building power in our communities in order to move power, right? Because we don't want, that's one thing that I could recall when I was talking with the board when I was named executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. And one of the things I said was, listen, we're growing as a as an organization and as a movement. I said, but I, this is an, an assurance that I'm not just assuring you, the board, but I'm assuring myself is that I will never trade access to power to movement building in my community. They can keep it. I don't need to be in that meeting. I don't need to be in that press conference. I don't need to be in that picture. I could give two shits about it. I am going to build the power in my community so that when you have those press conferences or those meetings, you are going to be responding to what our community wants and needs, right? And that's where I'm at now. And I feel like as a movement, that's where we need to be at. And we also need to contest for power across the board. And like with prosecutors, that is an area that we have to contest for. It's an area that traditionally activists have ceded to the state to run prosecutors. And it's an area that we have to address from a standpoint of harm reduction. Well, one thing that that we wanted to just ask before we wrap is, so Salim, what does abolition mean to you and what does it entail? Because it does mean different things to a lot of different groups. So I, I just want to hear what, you know, as concise as you can be on, on that specific question. I'm very glad that you asked that because that's something that we've been, and I've been personally struggling with as an abolitionist, not what I see as abolition or what abolition is to me, but the abolitionist landscape, right? I'm a brick and mortar abolitionist. I'm not an envisioning abolitionist, right? So I am fighting for the society that I want that has no prisons, no police. And I know that in order to get there, I have to build it. More importantly, I also know that to get there, you can't have a society of no prisons and no police if we're going to, if you can't envisioning abolishing the social contract that has governed the United States since its inception, right? So abolition is radical transformation of American culture and of world culture, right? But as a brick and mortar abolitionist, for me, as someone who every day I am dealing with cases and people that I personally know who are on the inside and dying, right? Who have been in prison for decades. I can't talk to them about abolition as envisioning something. I have to talk to them and their families as we're gonna bring your loved ones home while also working toward abolition. So abolition to, for me right now involves a lot of harm reduction and it involves a lot of carceral work, decarceration work, right? Because 
I would love to prefigure the community that we want to live in that doesn't have prisons, but I have comrades, I have people on the inside that need abolition now. They need to get out of prison now. So that means that I have to engage the state. I have to engage the state through lawsuits. I have to engage the state through appeals. I even have to engage the state through meetings with prosecutors, meeting the, the head of the Department of Corrections, meeting Governor Wolf's policy people. I have to go in rooms and talk with these people because as a brick and mortar abolitionist, I have to bring people home. I, I, I can't sit here and envision a society in the future without prisons when people that I spent decades in prison with are still rotting on the inside. So for me, abolition is brick and mortar. I'm a brick and mortar abolition. I'm gonna be chipping the walls now to get people home, to bring people out right now. And for the people who are envisioning abolition, I'll stand in solidarity with you and help envision and create that world that we want to see. But for right now, I got to charge that charge that wall now. I need the Bastille now. You know what I'm saying? And so that's the situation I am in as an executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. Great. I want to just thank you for your time. Next week, we will talk to the elected district attorney of San Francisco, Chesa Bodine. Bureaucracy was set up not to rehabilitate or break the cycle, but rather to perpetuate a revolving door of crime and trauma and violence and harm. He discusses his experience with the incarceration of his parents, his time as a public defender, and what his vision is as the chief prosecutor. That is often overlooked when we think about policy, when we think about the ways in which we often demonize people who are accused of crimes and lionize people who are victims of crime. These are often the same folks. And if we're more effective at supporting them when they're victims, they're less likely to be defendants in the next case. It kind of leads into the idea or the fact that the U.S. is the only country in the world that still actually gives out life sentences to juvenile offenders. And by most standards and by international law, that's considered cruel and unusual punishment. I witnessed my grandfather get murdered when I was 12 years old. And nobody ever asked me if I was all right. What the district attorney office in New York did, they used my family as a political pawn to try to get a conviction. You know, I wish I could tell you that that experience you just shared was unique, but we know that prosecutors across the country use crime victims in order to do things like seek the death penalty. Chessa has a unique perspective on criminal justice, and we look forward to hearing from him. Thanks again for listening. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.